I often wonder about the nature of reality, about our relationship to the creative force that forged the particles of our stars and intertwined them with the molecules of our bodies. Who are we? And where are we actually sitting within the architecture of our universe? Are we alone? Or is the answer simply stranger than we can think? My name is Jeremy Corbell. I seek to weaponize your curiosity. And if you're ready to suspend your own prejudice, welcome to the world of extraordinary beliefs. You know, I'm a scientist, and when I look at other questionable information or other interesting information, I have to follow the scientific method. And look, if I, it has to be reproducible and with proof. And look, I can't lay out all the proof to make it unquestionably true. So, you know, according to the rules of science, you are obligated not to believe it until I can. So, yeah, I'm not saying believe the story. I'm saying this happened to me. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't prove it, you know, without going back in time and bringing you there. So, um, you know, just let it be. I don't really care if you believe it or not. Um, it's just kind of a report what happened to me. So that's the voice of Bob Lazar. In 1989, Peabody award-winning investigative reporter George Knapp broke a story that would send shockwaves throughout the globe. The basic premise that Lazar, a former Los Alamos scientist working out near Area 51, was given the specific task of reverse engineering extraterrestrial spacecraft for the United States government. The audio you just heard was from my first physical meeting with Lazar. It was unplanned, unexpected, and somewhat daunting. I had years of questions for a guy notorious for not answering them. So if you are not familiar with the story of Lazar, it's time to do some research. His story is extremely important. People have referred to Lazar as the Snowden of ufology. In hearing his story, you need to consider one very important thing that Lazar could be telling the truth. I will warn you that this experience is going to be personal. You'll be going on a journey with me. You will experience the double-edged sword of desire. On one side is knowledge, and on the other, utter frustration. Eventually, what you learn will have to be cemented into your core by your own reason, your own ration, and your own deduction. I will simply open the doors and let the light in. What you see is more important than what I see, for it will be you that has to carry that burden. What you discover might change you. It might break you at the foundations before allowing you to rebuild your paradigm as it has me. You will need patience, determination, intelligence, and above all else, you will need curiosity. Curiosity will be your greatest weapon on this journey. You will undoubtedly question the integrity of those I interview, and then hopefully your judgment will turn inward, and you will come to your own conclusions. At its core, the Extraordinary Beliefs recordings are a series of conversations. Conversations 
that ordinarily never leave the confines of the four walls they're conducted in, but nothing in this investigation is ordinary. That you can be sure of. So now I interview a man, a physicist whose records can be verified, a scientist who has worked at numerous military installations and who recently revealed to me something profound on my search to understand the Bob Lazar UFO case. The gravity of which can be described as monumental. What's your name and what do you do for a living? Uh, Dr. Krangel and I'm an engineering physicist. We're in a laboratory right now. Can't really describe it, so hopefully we'll be able to film here one time, but it's in a very impressive laboratory. It's a real laboratory with a lot of interesting gadgets, which I cannot even fathom what they're used for at this time. And uh, where are we right now? What what state, where are we at for the audience? We're in the state of confusion. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the case. Uh, in my laboratory in Albuquerque. How long have you been in the Albuquerque area? About 40 years. 40, so not, not that long. Yeah, not that right. <laughs> I hated the place so much after I got stationed here that I stayed for 40 years just to make sure I hated it that much. Uh, before we talk about why I got introduced to you, um, if you had to go through kind of your life phases, you've mentioned a few to me, uh, being that you were in the Air Force, flying helicopters, and now you find yourself as uh, an electronics engineer who does calibration for a variety of agencies. What would be the major phases in your life if you had to label them? You mean as, I've been an engineer since high school, you know, as far as mentality, and of course, you know, by the time you get a degree, now you're an official engineer. That's never changed. The Air Force was just one of those things that I won the lottery, the draft, and couldn't refuse the prize. So that <laughs> that was a hiatus from engineering. That's, but otherwise, it's been engineering, science and engineering. Okay, so that has been your focus since uh, the beginning, and you, you had the hiatus through the military flying helicopters, which I thought was pretty cool. In your professional capacity, so what are the benchmarks? Like, you got a degree, where'd you get it from? What was the degree? What were the different benchmarks of employment in, as far as your experience? Like, what, what can you tell me about your history of... Well, my bachelor's is from uh, New York Institute of Technology. My doctorate's from MIT. Uh, and no sooner I got my doctorate, I got drafted. Uh, so, you know, five, six years in the military. And when I came out of the military, I had this vision of I was going to be an engineer with Hewlett Packard or Tektronix, you know, rank and file staff engineer. Well, when I came out of the military, which was in a recession, not only they weren't hiring, they were firing thousands of my peers and colleagues. So it was either deliver pizza, you know, drive a taxi cab, or open up my own laboratory. So when you get a doctorate at MIT, do you physically have to go to school on campus there? Yeah. Okay, you do. And, and how long is that process of getting a doctorate? About four years. Four, so you spent four years at MIT. Yeah. I think you might know who I'm starting to talk about, but it's Bob Lazar. He told me about that he got a degree from MIT, and he's told everybody that. He stands by the story. The thing is, is that factually it's hard to prove that because he's not in any yearbooks or anything like that. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, if you're going for, if you're going for a, uh, a graduate degree, uh, you wouldn't be in any kind of yearbooks. That's, you know, that, that's for undergrads. You know the class of you know the the class of seventy the class of seventy one that that that's an undergrad getting your bachelor, 
when you're up there getting a, a graduate degree, you're not like with a class. So like a master's or something. Right. Really? Right. You're okay. in there as you're you're in there as an independent. There's not like a class of seventy for your masters. Okay. So what years was it that you went to school there for your doctorate? Sixty nine to seventy three. Sixty nine to seventy three. So I mean significant amount of time, four years, went to school on campus. From there, what was the next kind of major step for you in your career? Well, that was where formal education stopped, at least in, in engineering and science. The, okay. There was a formal education of becoming the Air Force, you know, uh, uh, stand-up straight guy, you know, officer, you know, with the properly trimmed mustache and the shiny shoes. That, that means you're a super troop. doesn't mean whether you can do your job or not. You've got shiny shoes and a properly trimmed mustache. You're a super troop. <laughs> uh, but when I came back from Vietnam, they stationed me in New Mexico. Uh, I complained and thought I'd been placed in the world's worst. I asked to be put back on the East Coast, you know, home, family, friends. And when I screamed and bitched a little bit about it, the Air Force's answer was, again, keep in mind, I came back from Vietnam. The Air Force's answer was, well, you're 14,000 miles closer to home than you were last week. How do you argue with that kind of impeccable logic? Yes, but I'm still 2,000 miles from home. But somehow it stuck, because that must have been about 40 years ago. Uh, it was about 40 years ago and came to the realization, wait a minute, hiking, camping, I'm, I'm, I'm a gun collector, I enjoy shooting, uh, no license, no registration required down here, and golly, you, you know, from Albuquerque, you drive 10 minutes in any direction, and you're in wilderness, you can shoot till your heart's content. I'm in heaven. And, and starting a laboratory, I couldn't have started a laboratory in New York. The big fish would have swallowed me before I had a chance to get off the ground. Where a laboratory here, you know, again, it's, 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 it's a much lighter economy. We're kind of this cultural uh, little mecca within a giant poverty pocket. And the, the, and the technological mecca is, you know, Sandia Laboratories, Kirtland Air Force Base, Kirtland Air Force Weapons Lab, Los Alamos Labs, White Sands. I mean, you won't find that in New York. Can you tell me some of the laboratories that you have done contracting work for? Pretty much all of them. Can uh, you list them? Because I don't know <coughs> them and some of the listeners won't know them. Air Force Weapons Lab, Sandia Labs, several different areas uh, at Sandia, Area 5, Area 3. Uh, Los Alamos, I've been up there. I've done work with White Sands. I've been out even as far as California. Uh, you know where China Lake is, you know, Ridgecrest. Uh, I've done some testing out of China Lake. Uh, one of the things that I do is a company will call and say, we want to do this test project. How do we set up the test? You know, we, want, we want to measure you know, X. How do we, what, what equipment do we need and how do we set that up? And that's, and that's the gap that I fill. One of the reasons why I was introduced to you was because you're not into this world that I'm investigating that includes ufology, advanced propulsion systems. But one thing that, that I was told was that not only did you have some work that you did at Los Alamos, but additionally that you somehow met Bob Lazar. And so I, before talking about that, can you tell me what is it that you have done at Los Alamos? What time frames and, and or whatever you can tell me about that? I, I've done contracts up at Los Alamos pretty much all through the eighties. Uh, I still do contracts with Los Alamos, uh, not as many as used to, uh, but I still you know have some contact up there. Uh, but all through the eighties, that's I was doing you know design project this or you know the uh, a kind of an ancillary engineering. 
you know, their engineers have been beating a problem, and sometimes you get too close to the problem, you know, where you, you, you can't see the forest for the trees. So they bring in people like me as, as an outside contract to take a fresh look, you know, see, what, see what's going on. Though the equipment that I may have been working with might have been on some high security, something or another, that they'd have to kill me if they told me what it was. <laughs> but an amplifier is an amplifier. A signal generator is a signal generator. What you do with that equipment, that may be classified, but the specific piece of equipment itself is not classified. It sounds like all throughout the 80s, you were able to physically go to Los Alamos to work on X, Y, or Z, whatever project they may have. So you were a subcontractor, is that right. what you call it? Right. And the specific area of focus that you focused in on was, what would you, how would you describe it? Electric Instrumentation. Instrumentation. And so, again, what is your kind of title as a scientist? What is well, it? engineering physics, but uh, what I've been functioning as primarily is metrologist. Okay. Not to be confused with meteorology, I am not the weather guy. No, I got it. What's the difference? Go ahead and tell the, the listeners. Metrology is the science of measurements. Meteorology is the science of the weather. I can control the instruments. That, you know, the, the meteorologists, they're on their own. They can't control the weather. How about mesmerology? What's that? <laughs> okay, so as a scientist, you go in your subcontractor throughout the 80s at Los Alamos. Um, so you, you were obviously allowed, were you given a badge ever to get in there, or how did you access? Yeah, you get, you get temporary badges, you know, a visitor badge or a contractor badge, uh, which those, those, badge has, those badges have a life, there's an extinction to them, you know, they might be good for a couple of days or a week, but it, it's never a, a carte blanche pass like the employees have. And, and so as a, with these visiting passes, did they always take them back from you, were they paper, were they plastic, what were they? Uh, well, the early days they were, they were paper. In, in as as they progressed in their own technology, they became plastic. And yes, now they have pictures on them and a little barcode and a little magnetic strip reader. When did they start having pictures and barcodes on them, from your memory? Probably within the last fifteen years. But back in the eighties, no, it was it was a, a handwritten slip of paper. Okay, and then so if but if you did have an ID, let's say around nineteen. 84 or something like that would it have had your picture and a barcode if you were a permanent employee uh, I don't think I've ever I've ever looked at what the permanent employees look like I would suspect it would probably be something that would you know like a driver's license that would that would fit in a wallet but to be honest with you I don't think I've ever ever looked at one yeah. of the ones that that the yeah I just the be permanent party had yeah, I'd be just curious to see, and I, I've been shown a couple, and um, do you have any of the badges that they, do, would they let you keep them? I'll bet you, you know, if I dig into some of my, <laughs> I'm, I am not a hoarder, I'm honestly. I'm taking you back 30 but I'm years. Also not, I keep stuff that anybody else would look at and go, why the hell have you still got it? Right, okay. But I'll bet you if I look back in some file somewhere, I can probably find some of those, you know, day passes or week passes. Yeah. And do you, like, for example, you graduated a doctorate at MIT, you spent four years of your life studying there, do you have that diploma, like, on your wall or something? Or? Uh, that, that, that hangs very proudly in my safe. You know, you get a degree like that, you've worked hard, you know, you got it, you have it, but you're, what you're saying is what's funny is it's in your safe, you know. It's just... Well, getting the degree, you know, that's when, I, when I do lectures for, for engineering, with engineering students, getting the degree is, is the same thing as somebody going to school to get a degree in art. Well, you can have a degree in art, that doesn't make you an artist. Right. Uh, my, my litmus test for the engineer is how many patents have you got? Gotcha. How many things that are out there in the world that you can point to and say, that's there because I did that.
Gotcha. And so let me ask you this is, what was the first memory that, because it was introduced to me that you had run across Bob Lazar or worked with him in some, at Los Alamos somehow. What was your first interaction with Lazar and where was it? Well, it wasn't much of an interaction. It was, you know, one of these things, you know, meetings and, you know, like security meetings, you know, you have to go to go to that once every week or a couple of weeks, you know, and they give you the, the usual briefing about don't talk about what you're doing, don't talk about what you see. So Lazar, who's kind of, if you've seen him, you know, he kind of stands out. Frankly, I think he, he looks like Hawkins. You know, he has that same uh, British Norman facial structure. Uh, anyway, that's, uh, we didn't work together, but, you know, cafeteria kind of thing. You know, you pass him uh, in, in some of the, the, the commander's call, if you will, you know, meetings, you, you, you pass him. So, yeah, I, he, he was up there. We didn't work together. Uh, and about what year was it that you remember seeing him? <sighs> to pin it down, certainly in the 80s. Uh, probably earlier than late 80s, uh, but if you if you try to pin me down to a specific year, month, week, oh, right, well, this is not something that you've obsessed about over the last you know 25, 30 years. This is like I'm asking you out of the blue here. When did you work there? All this, yeah, of course you're not going to have the specific dates, but you're pinning it down to around that time period. But what's interesting to me is you're saying that you would run across Bob. Lazar at like a security meeting, you know, don't talk about this, don't talk about that, or in the cafeteria. Was it your impression that he was a concession stand salesman or a janitor, or did you think he... <laughs> uh, he was dressed wrong to be the janitor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so how did you know Bob, in what capacity was he there working from your knowledge? Uh, you know, what, what was he there, what was he at Los Alamos? Well, he was a physicist, which I'm a physicist. Uh, we we kind of recognize each other. You know, it's the classic you know pocket condom with the all the proper different colored pens. So that's, <laughs> he he fit that mold. If if nobody would have told me he's a physicist, uh, one look, he's a physicist. You know, he he he's properly dressed in geekdom. Okay, okay, but but did people tell you he's a physicist, or was that ever explained to you? In in some conversations, you know, that somebody would be talking about what somebody was doing, uh, and they point over, oh yeah, that's you know that that oh that and that's him over there. What was your impression of what Bob was doing at Los Alamos in the eighties? Well, at the time I was I was there, I really didn't know what specifically Bob was doing. We didn't work together. Mm -hmm. We simply crossed paths, at least you know, in in, in glancing view. Uh, I didn't know what he was up to any more than he knew what I was up to. But you did know that he was a physicist. Yes. And that was very clear to you, that he was a physicist at Los Alamos and not, again, like the janitor. Right. Okay. Right. And in, in conversations with some of my colleagues, you know, again, sitting over lunch, you know, we'd be talking about something, something happening or who's doing something it's okay to talk among yourselves. You're just not allowed to tell your wife or your kids what you're doing. But and somebody, you know, oh yeah, that that's uh, you know Bob over there is is working on something something project. Uh -huh. And so, did you get any other impressions? I mean, you've described kind of him very well. He's got kind of got the Hawking's face. He's he stands out. He's got the pocket protector. He's a physicist working at Los Alamos. Is there anything else that stood out about Bob? Um, just yeah, one of the fellows was telling me about him building a jet car. And that, since I'm a sports car nut also, you know, the shade tree mechanic, 
uh, that kind of you know tickled my fancy. It's like, oh, I'm not the only loony. In <laughs> yeah, he did in fact build a jet car. Um, there's actually a you know you know that magazine when when that was put out through Los Alamos, the Los Alamos something. It's like a journal. Oh well, it's not a journal. It's like the 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 base newspaper. Right, and yeah. so there was this front cover image of him with his jet car on it. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, one one time. So that's kind of part of this the story of Bob, or the lore of Bob, is that oh, if he didn't work there, how is he on? The, I don't remember what it's called, the Los Alamos something, the Los Alamos Monitor, I think is what it's called. And it's a, I mean, the base, the Sandia has the same thing. Yeah, you know, Kirtland has the same thing. It, it, it's kind of you know what's going on, you know, these days, and it. Uh, the, you know, it, it's more family oriented. You know, there's a lot of stuff about where the pool parties are and all that kind of thing. But there's a little bit about you know who stands out. You know, employee of the month kind of. Right. So people say that like he's not a scientist. That's that's like the big thing. Lazar's not a scientist, right? Um, he was hired by Kirk Meyer to go out to you know Los Alamos. He's not a scientist. He's a lowly subcontractor that did nothing in scientific capacity. What would you? How would you respond to that? Well, I don't know if he was again just like I, I was a contractor up there. Uh, I don't know if Bob was a official employee of Los Alamos or if he was up there as a subcontractor, but he was up there. And would that really matter, or you could st still work on science projects? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what I'm gathering from you is that you saw Bob Lazar on a number of occasions up at Los Alamos. People pointed him out to you as a physicist, but you would know that from a mile away, that he was obviously not there cleaning floors, that he was a physicist like yourself, and you are a MIT graduate, four years doctorate, and you were a subcontractor going up there, never fully employed by Los Alamos, and you were doing cool scientific work up there I imagine fun stuff yeah and that's and and Bob certainly that's uh, like we talked about with the jet car that's it's the curse of the it's the curse of the breed you may have a degree in in electronics but you're gonna dabble that's that's the uh, you know what an engineering degree is that's a license to mess with anything and <laughs> everything and we do it's so fascinating to me to talk to somebody who's not you know, drank the Kool-Aid, knows the whole story, and is really into it, and just says, I worked there, I saw Bob, he stood out to you somehow. And I understand how Los Alamos would, would blackball him. He committed professional suicide. In what way? Uh, by doing that uh, that video that he did where he was talking about, you know, the, the craft that he, he'd had exposure to. Uh, he, would, he went into quite a little tutorial on how an matter-antimatter engine might work. Uh, which is how they would get enough power and energy in that craft to do what they wanted to do. And he broke the code. He broke from the fold. He talked about it. That's it. That's a death sentence. And why is it a death sentence? Within that security community, that's, you're not even allowed to tell anybody what time it's, you go to lunch. Uh, that, that's just that mentality that's up there of, of don't talk about what you do. So, so from what you understand, by, by Bob publicly talking about his experience with the work that he did, not at Los Alamos, but south of Groom Lake, he was committing a sort of... Professional suicide. Professional suicide. Because you get blacklisted for doing that. Is what that's right. Saying. So you, you've been told in your work, obviously, you can't talk about this. And, and, and you didn't. And that's how you maintain your... <laughs> if you want to make a living at your profession, then you follow the rules. I, I would love to know, have you ever heard about a, a sub-base 
south of Groom? I mean, I called the base. I know for a fact it, it exists, but it's called S4. Have you ever heard about that? No. Never. Would you tell me if you had, or could you not tell me? I would at least, if I'd heard about it, I'd, I'd let you know. If I do anything further than that, I'd have to Just shut say, my mouth. Yeah, I got you. And that won't get me blacklisted. <laughs> right, right, and that's the main point, right? So, so okay, basically what he did, and I find that very interesting, you say he committed um, professional suicide. Is that something that you knew, found out about, or how did you know that he did that? How did it come to your understanding that he, that he did that. A friend of mine gave me a copy of his tape. All right, and then that's how you knew. And I watched that, and I certainly recognized him. Uh-huh. Uh huh. From Los Alamos. From Los Alamos, yeah. And it's like, okay, I got to sit back and, and and see what he's got to say. Um, technically, I think he was correct as far as his description of how things might work. Could we, are we capable of, of doing that technology today? No. Bob says absolutely not. Bob says absolutely not we're capable of doing that. No way. Well, it's that whole matter, any matter thing. I mean, to, to be able to make a little piece of any matter and contain it yeah. is a real problem. But theoretically, what he was describing is, is could be very real. Yeah, so that, that's interesting. There's one thing, which is that the, the, um, the material science itself, he said it's like dropping an iPhone in the um, wagon you know, days. He says, they, they told him, can we make this with what we've got? And his answer was, no, we can't. So that's why he said back engineering. At first, he didn't believe it was non-human technology. At first, he thought it was the coolest shit in the world. He thought we were flying saucers. We were flying them, right? And then he realized they're asking him to back engineer it. Yeah, reverse engineer reverse. something that didn't come off the Hewlett-Packard or Tektronix manufacturing line. Right, and so so that was kind of like you know his his wake up call that this this was something weird was going on. But so I guess w what I'm fascinated about is when you saw that tape. I mean, you had seen Bob at Los Alamos. You, you knew him as a physicist there and a scientist. He wasn't the concession uh, stand seller. No, he wasn't the guy with the kiosk selling candy bars, no. Right, right. So, so he's, he's a contemporary of yours in, in the same field as a physicist and engineer. And you see him on this tape, and he's describing this science. Now, a lot of people say it's gobbledygook. What he says about the science, that none of it's real science, that it's gobbledygook. Bob says, look, I'm trying to explain it to you in the way that you will understand it very simply. Well, if you're trying to describe it, something like that to the public, you don't do it with a bunch of exotic math. The public is not going to understand the exotic math. You've got to put it in some kind of terms that the layman can at least have a prayer of grasping. And leave the exotic math for your peers. So you think that the way he described the propulsion system, that, it, that as an MIT doctorate engineer, you do think that it's um, plausible? Yeah. Yeah. Have we done that yet? Does it exist as something made by us yet? No, but the theory is there. I mean, uh, was it Galileo that uh, designed a helicopter? Oh, is Da Vinci. Da Vinci. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, absolutely. well, but could they build that helicopter back? Well, no, but was the theory right? Yeah, you bet. One of the things that Bob talks about is that the element 115, which is stabilized, you know, which he said had to have been mined somewhere. He says, you, you know, it would take too much energy to create even the number of atoms that you need. But that was the, the, the main part that worked in the reactor was this highly machined piece of element 115, as described by Bob. And it was actually machined at Los Alamos. 
they didn't know what they were working on machining. It had to be put in these really thin slices and then cut into triangles. Now, this is what Bob claims. What, what do you think of it? Do you know about this and what do you think of it? When you're talking about is it, it, it was highly machined, the, a machinist doesn't have to know what it is he's cutting. He maybe have to know what the hardness of it is, but he doesn't have to know what that's going to be used for. You give a machine a machinist a print to fab, here, here's this, this chunk of metal, cut it the way the, the fabrication sheet says it ought to be cut. So the machinist doesn't have to know anything more than, I made this triangle. And, and what's interesting is that um, Bob even knew the code for transport. They obviously didn't write element 115 on the boxes, so they called it LA-1000. And that was the shipping code back and forth from the base where it was used to Los Alamos to be machined. Oh, really? Yeah, it was interesting. So like all the pieces are kind of coming together on that. But I guess the pertinent part of this here is, did you have any verbal conversation with Bob at any point? And you said, yes, later you did. Yeah. Can you describe that to me? Well, we, we chatted. It was, it was after, he, obviously, he was gone from Los Alamos. Uh, he had a, a company here uh, in New Mexico, in, in, not in Albuquerque proper, but over in the East Mountains, uh, United Nuclear. And my first actual verbal contact with him was, there was a company up in uh, Santa Fe, uh, Eberline, who used to make Geiger counters and uh, atomic probes, um, they left, and they had a pig that was in the floor. A pig is a is a lead vault where the radiation source resides. They had, they left the pig, and they left the radiation source there. Well, the place that bought the company that bought that building <laughs> didn't really want to glow in the dark. Uh, so a friend of mine gave me a call and said, who do you know? So I called Bob. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to go clean out the radioactive thing. Yeah, to go get this glow-in-the-dark thing. It's like, hey, dude, you want this stuff? <laughs> and of course, he was probably over the moon wanted it bad, right? Right. And so was... what made you think to call Bob Lazar to go pick up the radioactive waste that someone had left in the basement of some place? Well, this wasn't radioactive waste. This was a calibration source. Uh, so that you can test a probe to say, you know, it reads in this way when exposed to this material. Uh, but they left it there. Uh, so I knew, again, through conversations with peers and colleagues, I knew about Bob being over in the East Mountains and his, his company, United Nuclear. And, I, and it, it had been rumored that, you know, that's what he's doing is selling uh, radiation sources, you know, little samples. You know, you can get these little pucks with a, a piece of cesium or a piece of tritium, uh, you know, to, to check Iger counters. Well, that's uh, if anybody knows how to handle that stuff and knows what to do with it, sounds like he's the man. So I gave him a call. Wow. And so, I mean, it's fun. And we chatted about his jet car and we chatted about <laughs> what, No, what did you talk about? Uh, all, all our little, you know, in, involvements and our little pet projects. I asked him, why did you commit professional suicide? But he said it was information that he really wanted, and he really thought the world should know. Wow. And I, did you, and I asked him, did you realize what that was going to do to you as far as, you know, your ability to function within? And he was kind of, well, yeah... <laughs> classic yeah <laughs> so okay so i mean what's so fascinating is a lot of people who never talk to anybody about it they like to just say bob lazar is not a scientist he never worked at los alamos he never went to mit and that's proven by x y and z bottom line is 
you knew him or about him through colleagues as a scientist, and you went to him because there was a you know radioactive uh, equipment uh, detection stuff that you thought he might like. You guys talked about jet cars. You saw him at Los Alamos a bunch. And this is a real guy. He's a real scientist. And on a private phone conversation, he admitted to you he committed, you know, um, professional, professional suicide. suicide. So, so you would be satisfied by saying, as being yourself, an MIT graduate with a doctorate, as being an engineer, that, uh, and being a scientist, that Bob Lazar is a scientist. You know, that's, you, you can talk to somebody and get a pretty good feel, you know, just in, in the matter of which they speak. Uh, is this guy educated or not? And educated doesn't necessarily have to mean formal. Uh, I've met several people that were self-educated that would probably blow the doors off of, you know, most of the formal educated people. They've got a lot more horse sense. One of the things formal education does is, is try to teach you what you can't do. It's the guy that's self-educated that nobody told him he couldn't do that. That's why he went ahead and did it. Right. George Knapp, who's, kind of, who's my mentor in journalism, he says, left field Bob, you know, that Bob comes from the left field, the problem solver Bob, that like, you know, his talent is kind of, you know, taking something that other people are kind of scratching their heads about and come from a totally different angle and find solutions. The new approach, the fresh look, right, think outside the box. And it also seems, I mean, just sitting here in your laboratory and hearing your stories and life experiences, it also seems like you guys are kind of kindred spirits. It seems like that's also your approach to things. I mean... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I've right. been the rogue all my life. And you're known for that, in fact. When I was young, I was, I was ostracized for it because I hadn't established my my position in the pecking order within the, within, the, within the discipline of the science. Now that I'm old, you know, now it's a respected trait. You know, just, just like grandpa is okay to, to, to mumble and grumble, but if you do that when you're in your 20s, uh, you're just an annoying kid. What is, what is the best... I mean, I guess what I'm searching for here is... I, I believe Bob... And I have reason to believe Bob. It's not because it's a blind faith like religion. You're just like, oh, it sounds cool, so I'm going to believe it. All the evidence has suggested that he's, A, telling the truth completely, and, and B, that people try to smear his name and try to demote his scientific abilities in people's minds. If you break from the fold, look at Snowden. Had Snowden not done what he did... He would be the, the great kid that's doing the intelligence gathering, and so, but he broke from the fold. So suddenly Snowden is this terrible, you know, the government can generate the, the, your weight in paper. If they like you, your weight in paper says you walk on water. If they don't like you, your weight in paper says you're the, you're, you're the Satan child. So, you know, and, and Bob is essentially the same thing as Snowden. He broke from the fold. That's fascinating, man. I would like to believe what he worked on. I would like to believe that story. Again, the scientist in me says, if I can't touch it, feel it, sniff it, smell it, weigh it, measure it, come back and do the same thing tomorrow and get the same result. So I can't prove or disprove what he'd worked on. As far as what he describes, and as far as the theory of how what he describes could work, I think he's, he's spot on. I wish I saw that same something. You know, then again, too, you, in the capacities that you've had to, or decided to work as a subcontractor for a lot of these agencies and businesses in these areas, um, you, too, have been 
shown things that, that don't necessarily line up with the chronology of our own development of technologies. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say, but... We're not going to say anything more about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, right, understood, exactly. Understood, I'm, I'm not going to break from the fold. <laughs> it, it, and, and you know what? I, I guess what I'm saying is... I'm not ready to commit, at this point, professional suicide. Maybe in a few years after I'm retired and it don't matter anymore. Okay, well, you make sure to call me on that. <laughs> but, uh, but, so, but there is something that you have experienced that probably leads you to lean towards the idea that Lazar is credible is credible yeah well I guess Bob could prove his story in a number of ways if he wanted to or there are things he could use that I know about to, to help prove his story but it's almost like he's disinterested because the more people believe him the less c contracts he'll get the less work he'll get I mean it doesn't help him to be Bob the UFO guy you know when he's bidding on government contracts <laughs> in fact that's working against him yeah Right. And, um, you know, he even said, I, you know, someone asked him, does it ever come up, you know, that you didn't hold secrets, you know, if you're working on stuff? And he says, well, he says there it's come up kind of in a joke, like I'll get a bid for a contract and they'll get it. And they'll say, now, Bob, this isn't top secret, but we would appreciate it if you didn't talk about it because we know you got a problem with holding it. In. <laughs> and he's been like, he's just haunted him a little bit. But yeah. I'll bet. Yeah. So. But you are. In but at least he's managed to keep going. I mean, where where do you go from engineering physics at Los Alamos if you can't stay within your discipline? I mean, what do you do? Open up a TV and radio repair shop? You open United. Or go deliver pizzas? You open United Nuclear. That's right. I'm grateful that he spoke out about stuff because I think it, it, it's uplifted the conversation a little bit. But, you know, at the same time, people just are attacking him with slings and arrows, trying to make him seem like something else so that we don't have to deal with what he said. Just like Snowden. Yeah. It's an interesting correlation that you say that, you know, because it's almost like um, he's the Snowden of ufology. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens, you know, when, when the government gets caught, you know, when the spotlight comes on the cockroaches, they run. So when the government doesn't want to be proven that they've been withholding something, to, so then kill the messenger. Mm -hmm. Do you have any final thoughts on Bob Lazar, the story he told, anything you'd like to see in the future? Any final thoughts? I'd love to see a little bit more detail. I mean, it can't anything that he releases at this point, considering what he'd already done on that one tape, it, it, it can't hurt him anymore. <laughs> so I would love to hear and see, you know, a little bit more detail of what it is he was exposed to. Uh, you know, at a symposium, I, that, that's one of those things I probably would buy a ticket to go see. Interesting. I mean, so we just did that, you know, where. Uh, myself, George Knapp, and Bob all spoke at this UFO Congress 2015 event, and it was really cool because we each gave a little presentation. I gave a presentation about my film work. George Knapp gave a presentation about his whole experience for 25 years dealing with the Lazar chaos. And then he did a Q&A with Bob on stage where they talked about what he experienced, and he revealed a little bit more information. But he says, look, I've told you everything. So what you're saying is, is that you'd like to hear a little bit more detailed explanation from a scientific standpoint, some facts, some figures, some numbers that correspond to the general. Yeah, I don't need all the exotic math. Uh, 
math to me is uh, that, that that's how an engineer impresses his colleagues. Uh, I'm much more interested in hearing the narrative part of it. You know, let, let the math support later and can come later, but the narrative part of it. So, so what, something that bothered Bob, there were two things that really bothered him, and I don't know, maybe you have any insights on this, and he simplistically just explained one thing that makes no sense to him with the physics that he knows now, and this was his kind of gripe, was that there, there's got to be a physics that we're not being told about, because this stuff defied what we should know. These are supposed to be laws. You're not supposed to break these. So two things that bothered him. He said when they turn on the power source, that he says, go ahead and touch it. And Bob would bring his hands. He said it was exactly like you take two opposite poles of a magnet and you push together, except it was with his hands. And he said he, had n he does not understand how that happened. But he says he would go up and push, and he could feel it like magnets. And, and, and that baffled him. Do you understand why that would baffle him? No, I hadn't. I hadn't heard that. I hadn't heard that description. And, and, and interesting. Yeah, interesting. And but but it really bothered him because he's like that shouldn't be. It shouldn't be like that. Well, to to say it, it breaks a law. The laws of physics as we know them today. But you know, if 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 you went back even a hundred years ago, a jet plane that we take for granted today breaks every law of physics that a physicist from a hundred years ago you right. know, it's like that thing can't stay aloft. How's that doing that? Like, or and like, go faster than the speed of sound? Nothing goes faster than the speed right. of sound. Right. We might break the atmosphere into a cataclysmic event if we break the speed of sound. That's right. Like, yeah, the giant, yeah, the giant abyss is going to open up. And yeah, yeah. So that's what breaks the law of physics as we view it today could be different in a hundred years or a thousand years. That's right. Okay. You know, if and physics is one of those wonderful things. You know, if you break the law, you get a ticket, you get a fine, and you go to jail. If you break a law of physics, you usually get a Nobel Prize and a lot of money. <laughs> Dynamite. <laughs> so, uh, so I guess the other thing that was kind of interesting, I never understood. He says uh, one of the tests they did was the, his buddy who was in the lab with him, Barry. They were they were partnered. The guy brought over a, a candle. And he says when he brought it next to the so the power source when it was the antimatter reactor the power source when they brought the ca the candle flame over, he says he doesn't understand how this works. The candle became still, so it was the, sti flame, the flame became still became absolutely still. Yet it it was emitting light, and he says if it was a gravity source, so it essentially froze the plasma. I don't know. I don't know that he knows. But all he knows is that when they brought the, the flame over to the, the power source, it literally was like someone took a picture of it. It just froze. And Bob kept saying... Did it become translucent? No. See, that's the thing. He didn't describe any difference. He said it looked like someone just snapped the photograph and put it there. And he says, my problem with it, he said, was that I know how photons work. I understand how light it should not have been emitting. If this was a gravity source, it shouldn't have frozen. It should, you should not be able to see the light. That's right, that's right. So it really it bothered him. It bothered him because he didn't understand how, how, why that would be. So here's a guy, if you're making up a story, wh why are you going to leave a big hole that like, you're like, an idiot? Like right? that, that, that you can't describe. You can't figure it out. Well, do understand, I am not a nuclear physicist. I'm a semiconductor physicist. So you know, anybody that's a physicist does not mean they are a nuclear physicist. Is that what Bob is? I don't know what the... Uh, I believe Bob is nuclear. Uh, I'm semiconductor. Okay. I, I make transistors. Okay. So, 
the laws of physics apply to the specific field in which you focus on is what that means. Right. right. Okay. So, you know, every physicist doesn't mean we're all experts in making nuclear weapons and right. running atomic power plants. Right. So if, uh, indeed, you know, Bob is a nuclear physicist, some of the uh, reflections of that would be the things that he's done, such as build a particle accelerator in his backyard. Oh, Lordy, I love it. <laughs> okay, so that is that is a symptom of being a nuclear physicist. Yeah, for sure. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so that don't, And don't stand in front of the E-beam. <laughs> okay. okay, so um, this was a very cool beginning, just to meet somebody who knew Bob professionally from Los Alamos, in, in the sense that you, you saw him there, you guys were in... I, um, you know, don't tell anybody meetings. What would you say? What do you call it? Security meetings? Yeah, security briefings. Yeah. Okay. So specifically, you, know, you they, remember... They, they, they lump you into these, you know, it's, it's little lecture halls or classroom kind of things, and you get your, you know, it, it's your security pep talk. So, so let me just ask you just real specifically. So you have a direct individual memory of being in a security briefing at Los Alamos with Bob Lazar? Yeah. Yeah, it was one of the. Yeah, it, it, when I'm, ta I'm not talking about a classroom of ten or twelve people. I'm talking about you know the auditorium size kind of thing. You know, everybody after lunch, you know, go over to the auditorium. You're going to get your security briefing for the week. And yeah, yeah, that's I remember seeing. And uh, so, so that I mean that just why you know why would he be there if he wasn't working in a uh, capacity where that was important? Yeah, I yeah. don't think they bring the janitor into yeah. Okay, because I just want to kind of demystify that once and for all, you know, the fact that you're there at a security briefing at Los Alamos and you're not even in, really into all this stuff, but you but you knew Bob, that's big. That's big for me because I spent a lot of my time and effort trying to figure this out. So thank you for your, for telling me your experiences. It's been fascinating. I, I wish uh, this was film so people could see your laboratory. Um, oh, go walk through Frankenstein's Playhouse? Yes, <laughs> it is absolutely fascinating in here and um, thank you for your time and I, I hope to continue the conversation and the dialogue. I'll have a lot more questions after I re-listen to this. Very cool. Excellent. Okay. Weaponize your curiosity and go to extraordinarybeliefs.com to learn more.